My name is Greg Boyd. I am the teaching pastor, uh, one of the teaching pastors here at Woodland Hills Church. Good to see all of you here on this wonderful uh, summer uh, Saturday afternoon. Uh, you get more righteousness points when you take off from your wonderful vacation time and come to the house of the Lord. Blessings on you. Indulgence points given to you. So we've been announcing here for the last several weeks that we're going to have a Q&A. And doesn't Paul look cute there? I mean, that is the cutest picture. I say, old boy. Quite so. Enjoy it. He's got very cute legs, too, I tell you. He's my bro. <laughs> I don't know where they come with these pictures, man. They, they're nuts. Uh, but we've been talking about we're going to have a, a whole weekend where we're going to just take the questions that have been coming in throughout the week uh, or throughout the last couple weeks. Um, and then take questions from the floor uh, via this text messaging technology and just spend the time addressing that. One of the reasons is because uh, it turns out I'm not very good at timing when I'm preaching. I have trouble reserving 10 minutes at the end of the message, believe that or not. It's, it's hard to, you know, succinctness is not my gift. And so uh, we just weren't getting to it that much, but we really like uh, having a time of questions. We think that that's really important and to be in dialogue and and things like that. So we thought, let's just take a, a whole weekend and just address that. Uh, we frequently make a, a distinction here uh, at Wilton Hills Church. In fact, we're going to be having a whole adventure series on this um, this fall. About the difference, it, rather than having a uh, theology that is like a house of cards where everything is considered equally important, as many people do. You know, if you disagree on anything, it's like a catastrophe. Rather than having a kind of a house of cards theology where everything's equally important and everything depends on everything else, we encourage people to have a concentric circle theology where you have a center that is the most important and then a, uh, in the next ring are very important things but they're not quite as important as the center and then you have a, a, another ring where it's still a little bit less important uh, and we, we, we diagram that here as having Jesus in the center because he's our only source of life. We don't get life from our opinions, we get life from our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then in the next, in the next uh, circle would be the dogmas of the church, the things that all Orthodox Christians have always believed. Those are very, very, very important things. We shouldn't be getting life from them, but they're extremely important. Then in the next ring, we have doctrines, uh, which are uh, things that particular churches believe, but they interpret the dogmas, uh, things about which the Christians have always had some difference of opinion. And then still further out, we have what you might just call opinions. And these are just opinions that people have had on various matters throughout history. Uh, but they've never defined a church body. And the, the closer to the center you get in this concentric circle model of faith, uh, the more weight you should put on things, and the farther out you get, the less weight you should put on things. And so when it comes to uh, doctrine and opinions, uh, we want to always err on the side of, of openness, to have a, 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 a congregation where we're okay asking questions and okay having differences of opinion. And uh, we really want to be encouraging that. Uh, so that not everyone has to always agree on everything or you have to be equally certain about everything or anything of the sort. Uh, and so we want to set a culture, an atmosphere here where we're, we're really okay with questions. And when we don't know, we say we don't know because why, why should you be expected to know everything? So um, this is the time just to pick our brains. This is my good bro, Paul Eddy. Love this guy. He's, he's, he and I have been spending the last, uh, every Friday uh, throughout the summer in the basement of Bethel Library doing research. And he helps me on my research with my book, Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Because uh, nobody finds literature in a library as fast as Paul Eddy. He is the research hound of the universe. <laughs> this guy is it's amazing, amazing. So appreciate you, man. 
So with that being said, let's uh, and feel free whenever you want to bring up questions. And Paul and I, sometimes we don't even agree. And that's, that's fine. We, I give him the right to be wrong once in a while. And, <laughs> and that just sort of just shows you how, how open we want to be about things. Okay. Serve it up. This is Vanessa. Yay. You ready for your first question? Let's do it. Bring it on. All right. I've been hearing a lot about Mormons in the news lately. Are Mormons Christians? Whoa. Ooh. You used to be a Mormon, didn't you? No, I never was, but you no. were. So you go ahead, Paul. Have, have at it. Have at it. This is the kind of question where you can, you know, take, take the word Mormon there and take it out of the sentence, and a lot of people will put a lot of things in that sentence. Can Mormons be, are they Christians? Can Jehovah's Witness, can Methodists, can whatever, right? So there's, there's, in church history, there's always been the question, what about other people that don't quite believe like us? But the church has also made a distinction through its history between, uh, maybe to go back to Greg's categories he just gave us a minute ago, that there, there's always been differences of opinion in the church, but usually where those differences of opinion lie is in what Greg uh, referred to as the opinion, that's way out there, kind of the, the edges of, of belief, or the doctrines, how different churches think about what we call the dogmas of the faith. Dogmas, I'd submit, are just what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he wrote his little book, Mere Christianity. The pillars, the basics. So dogmas, those are the basics. Doctrines, which a lot of churches disagree on, are differences of opinion on the basics. Why a lot of Christians would, would have problems with Mormons being just another denomination is there are some things that Mormons would disagree about with regard to the dogmas of the faith. For example, uh, Mormon theology teaches that there are many gods. That's going to be... Infinite uh, number of gods. An infinite number. They go on forever. The, the universe is filled with gods, in fact. Um, that would be by most Christians, historically speaking, uh, a deviation from the idea of one God, monotheism. Kind of. Um, so, so that's why, for example, if you talk about Methodists or Baptists or Lutherans, we say, yeah, we got some differences of opinion, but we all kind of rally around the dogmas. Mormons, and another example would be Jehovah's Witnesses, who deny the deity of Christ, deny that Jesus is fully God, would be deviating from the dogmas of the faith. And that makes a whole, uh, whole lot of difference. Yeah, so in terms of <coughs> um, uh, the historic orthodox definition of orthodoxy, what defines a church as being within the parameters of orthodoxy, uh, it is, as Paul said, it's, it's about sharing those, those core dogmas that are defined in the ecumenical councils of the first several centuries, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and things like that. So by definition, they're not Christian, Mormons are not Christian, or Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christian, uh, in the historic sense of the term. Um, they've got a number of beliefs, the, the plurality of gods being one of them. When they say we believe in only one God, and that's what they'll say when they come to your door, and if you ask them, oh, do you believe in a lot of gods, they'll probably say, no, we only believe in one God, same as you. But what they mean by that is there's only one God of our earth, of our planet, that we need to concern ourselves with. But they also believe that there are, are planets... From, from all eternity, God, there have been gods growing gods, and we are in the process now of being grown into gods. And that's radically outside the parameters of orthodoxy. And then they have another revelation, you know, the, the Book of Mormon, uh, that the angel Moroni, I suppose, they gave to Joseph Smith, and that puts them outside the parameters of orthodoxy and a number of other things like that. So they're not uh, orthodox in that sense. That's not to say that we're to sit or anyone can sit in judgment and say we know that so-and-so is saved or, or not saved. 
Those are two different issues. Um, and many Christians equate those two together, but uh, I, I, I don't see any basis for that. So I don't know whether they're saved or not, you know, what, what their relationship is with Jesus and, and whatever. But I would say just descriptively in terms of historic orthodoxy, they're outside the, the parameters. All right, here's a pretty important question. How would members of a church know if they're being led astray by their minister and if he was not teaching according to scripture? I found that a goatee often is a sign of... <laughs> a sign of truth, you're right, yeah, you're right. Why <sighs> It's an awkward well, question for you, isn't it? Yeah, it is kind of. Uh, just ask me. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> Uh, you know, in, in some ways, the question answers itself, and that is, uh, how do you know whether uh, your pastor is uh, teaching the Word of God? Well, check it against the Word of God. But of course, it's not that simple, because there's always different ways of interpreting the Bible, and different approaches, and things like that. Um, and so, um, what, what I in, would encourage anyone to do is, I mean, the Bible is the number one litmus test, uh, but I, I would be careful about interpreting the Bible alone, um, and your own private subjective view. I don't think the Bible was ever meant to be read that way. Uh, it's a community book, so you do it in, in, in community with others. You do it in, in the community, should involve uh, other scholars. Uh, and you can do that by studying commentaries and things of that sort. Uh, so to get a broad understanding of the Bible, and then uh, you measure everything that is said, and I encourage people to apply that to, to my messages more than anyone else's. I mean, do it. Uh, check it against the, the Word of God. Um, and there's also, though, the, the thing about what's going on in your spirit. Sometimes... I, you can be in a place and, and it, it, you hear something being said. Maybe you don't know exactly what it is uh, that's wrong, but something in your spirit just is not going yes to it. Now, that doesn't mean that that itself should be enough to disqualify the person uh, because we can be wrong about that, but it is something to pay attention to. And that, that can be the witness of the Holy Spirit. So the spirit and the truth, the spirit and the word would be the primary ways I would encourage people to go about that. And I think there's, a, there's biblical precedent for that answer in the book of Acts uh, Paul's teaching uh, at Berea, and uh, the Christians in Berea are commended for two things. One, they're open to hearing what what the apostles are teaching, but second, once they're kind of in an open mind, an open heart listening, it says, and then they go back and search the scriptures to see if these things were so. And so there's this sort of uh, dynamic of, of listening intently and also checking with the scriptures. And uh, as Greg said, you know, if you find, for example, that your church and your pastor are starting to teach and believe things that no one else in the body of Christ is, now you're moving into a, a enclosed, uh, non-communal form of Christianity. So we at Woodland are always trying to find ways of staying connected to other bodies and making sure that we're getting input beyond ourselves, um, just ways that uh, are wise to, to, to live as a church. You know, and, and part of that, that answer, I think, is, is this. If you're in a church context where... Um, you can't really ask that question. I, that itself should be uh, grounds for being very concerned. Um, if you have a, a church body where the, the pastor is not, you know, there's, there's no room to even talk about stuff, to investigate stuff. You can't ask questions. You can't challenge things. Um, or with the church elders or whatever. Churches can sometimes take on this controlling spirit that is, even if they're teaching the right stuff, that's not the right way to hold it. Uh, I look for a church body that gives space for people to grow and to be in process and we're, we understand that we're all just humans, and we have a finite capacity to know and understand, and we're going to see things from different perspectives. So there's got to be room for dialogue and for questioning, like we're doing right now. 
um, and, and for, for bringing some uh, questions up. And the, and the two extremes to avoid are, are, would be, on the one hand, you, you don't want to be, don't operate with the assumption that everything that you've been told, you know, since eighth grade or whenever, is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And some people operate with that, often because they're getting life from their beliefs, and so they can't afford to dare to call into question anything. Uh, they get their security from being right, so they, just, they kind of barricade all of the things that could possibly call that into question. So I wouldn't, I encourage people not to have that mindset where everything you have is already right. On the other hand, you don't want to be so open, open-minded, if you will, that, that um, you don't stand on anything, <laughs> you know, where, where you just consider every possibility that comes along. You want to be grounded in, in the fundamentals of the faith. So uh, like this, be, be grounded in, 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 in the faith. At the same time, I encourage you to have an open mind because uh, sometimes you learn things that you hadn't heard before, a new way of looking at things, or God reveals something to you that you had never seen before, and you want to be open to that. Good question. Is Satanism a religion? If not, what is it? You used to be a Satanist, Paul. Why don't you uh, <laughs> I think you gave that up last week, though. I'm hoping. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting question because it's actually a debate uh, between scholars of religion on the history and sort of how far back you can trace certain forms of, of Satanism and paganism. Um, what we typically call today modern Satanism is actually a pretty, pretty modern phenomenon. Um, you know, Anton LaVey's Church of Satan that was in the 1970s, he got that thing going, was pretty much a, a new idea that LaVey sort of slapped together with some things by a guy named Gardner from the 20th century that had done some things in, in uh, paganism. Um, but you do have some people. In fact, I've, I had a foster daughter once who was, uh, you know, let, let, let my wife Kelly and I know when she came into our home that she was a Satanist and that that was her religion and, and such. Um, apparently, I, I've heard now that in certain, uh, maybe the military, that there's actually been an appeal by some Satanists to have a, a, a satanic uh, a religious specialist available to them when they want it. So, you know, yeah, the, the, there's certain contexts that it's being appealed to as, as a real religion. Um, the history of it is very vague and largely thrown together in the, in the 20th century. Um, historically, that's about all I know about that. That all depends on how you want to define religion. Yeah. Uh, but if you define religion as any sort of system of beliefs and or behaviors, that are engaged in uh, to uh, get whatever favor or salvation or whatever from whatever God, whatever, uh, well, then it would count as a religion. Um, and so I, I think it is a religion in that sense, which is very different from the question of should it be considered a religion by the court or you right. know, all the military or all those other things. But it, is, it does involve religious beliefs and religious behavior. Yeah. Okay. What translation of the Bible would you say is closest to the original Greek-Hebrew texts? You've got a nice feel you do in our class on the different kinds of translations about, you know, what does close to mean? Yeah, and, you know, the yeah. balance. Well, why don't you share that? That's... I do, but I'm nervous because right to my right is a Greek expert. <laughs> so you correct I'm going to hold you accountable. If yeah, I know you get something will. wrong, I'm going to interrupt. <laughs> So the question of what is closest to any translation of anything is a tough question because um, when, you, when you go to translate something, uh, you know, if I uttered a phrase in English and I had a French-speaking person here who was going to translate it into French for French-speaking people, 
They would have a dilemma on their hands because they would have to, uh, uh, on one hand, say, okay, do I render what I just heard word for word or thought for thought? If you go word for word, um, which a number of Bible translations tend to do, these would be Bible translations like uh, New American Standard Version, which I happen to prefer, actually, uh, and the English, uh, is it English? ESB, there we go, yep. They are more what you call word for word. Where what basically they, they come very close to saying, well, what's the Greek word? What's the English word? Let's put it in English that way. The problem with that is, of course, is you know that between languages there's slippage sometimes where if you said what the actual word was, that's not what they mean, so to speak, because of idioms and things like that. So some scholarly translations, New American, or excuse me, uh, New International Version is an example of this, they go more thought for thought. Not what's the word, but what's the idea that's trying to be communicated. And so some translations are on one side of this continuum, some are on the other. Uh, we suggest that if you're doing you know, Bible study, it's not bad to have different kinds of translations. Maybe one that's more word for word, like New, and Amer New American Standard, one that's more thought for thought, like NIV, and be able to compare them to that, that, and that sort of thing. Yeah, so between, uh, between the most literal translation and, uh, and a paraphrase, where you just have a person just sort of rewording, you know, putting it all in their own words, often not even from the original languages. Between those two extremes, there's, there's a, a continuum, is what, 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 what Paul is saying. And there is no absolute right or wrong on that, because, I mean, as, as Paul said, it has to do with, with what are you looking for in it. Um, and one of, the, one of the factors to consider uh, on a Bible translation would be this. Uh, something about what, what is the style of it? Because uh, the New Testament, for example, was written in Koine Greek. Koine Greek is very different from classical Greek. It was sort of the street Greek of the time. Um, and uh, so that would, would, would uh, tell us that uh, a translation that speaks the language of the street would be, uh, all other things being equal, would be a better translation than one that kind of uses more highbrow religious language. You see? Uh, and so you want to use the kind of common language of, 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 of people. Uh, I personally like the NRSV as the best kind of balance. It's not word for word, but also doesn't do a whole lot. It's pretty strict in terms of how much leeway it gives in terms of idioms and whatever. But the reason I really prefer it, well, two reasons. One is every translation is going to have a bias. There's always some slippage between in a translation, and the space between the two languages is where a translator, a translator's biases, theological biases can come in. And so they'll always tend to translate in accordance with their own theological views. And if those theological views disagree with your own, that can cause some consternation. It's one of the reasons why I don't like the NIV. It's not at the top of my list anyways, because it tends to theologically interpret things in uh, ways that I, I wouldn't agree with theologically. Even though their translation isn't wrong, it's just that there's other ways to translate it that would be, I think, uh, more accurate only because it agrees with my theology more. Um, I mean, yes. Then, um, so, so what, one is the, the theological uh, uh, angle of the translation. And I, the NRSV, uh, I, I find myself liking the way it, it comes down on certain patches, passages. The other thing is, is I really believe it's important that whenever the Bible is referring to people uh, in general, to capture that, to say people in general, even though in the original language... Uh, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, you're dealing with a strongly patriarchal culture, culture uh, such that if you, there's a group of people that you want to refer to, and there was one man in the group, you would refer to the, the group as a group of men. 
You can use a, a feminine or a masculine when referring to groups of people. Um, and so you'll have in the Bible the brethren, but you won't have the brothers and sisters, or the men, but not the men and the women. But I, my conviction is that if the intention of the author wasn't to just refer to males, then we need to go out of our way to capture both. This is what's called an inclusive translation. And the NRSV, uh, as well as some other translations, are inclusive, uh, and I, I prefer those. The, the NIV, I just came out with an inclusive version. Yeah. And, um, so that it, All that our, being said, what's the right answer, Vanessa? I would say, if you want closest for word for word, go with either the NASB or the ESV. If you want something that's just readable, I'd go with either the NIV or the NLT. That's if you want a great paraphrase, go with the message. Yeah, just realize it's a paraphrase, but it's a good paraphrase. Mm -hmm. um, we actually have a few questions about Scientology. Um, and <laughs> to <laughs> to expected of, that. <laughs> of course, of course. So I'm kind of combining some of them together, but basically people want to know, what do we need to know about Scientology? How should we respond to it? Is it a cult? What do we need to know? And will it make your marriage work? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you were a Scientologist. <laughs> this is going on all night. I don't know much about Scientology. I, uh, I, I, I know that they have those debits or something that they got to get out of. I don't know, but uh, I, I really can't. Yeah. I... Bam! Stumped well, okay, us. Okay, so, so I had this one experience. I, okay, I was sitting... I'm going to go home tonight and Google that because, you know, I mean, that's, of course, Tom Cruise, that whole thing. I, we should have anticipated that. I mean, the, from what I can tell, there's, there's, there's sort of two dimensions to this, right? One is the sort of the mythology that L. Ron Hubbard came up with that supposedly, you know, gave birth to the Scientology movement. Um, but I, this is about five years ago, I guess, I was in a coffee shop and I ended up having about a three-hour conversation with a Scientologist. And the little bit I knew about that, and it seemed highly implausible to me, the whole kind of space science fiction mythology thing, I, I was going to push on that with this person. Well, this person almost said, well, I don't know anything about that, and I don't really care. He says, most Scientologists, we don't really care about that stuff. What we care about is the empirical evidence that Scientology, in fact, helps people live better lives. So he was a pure pragmatist at that point. And he, he just kind of went through his life about how Scientology had made him a more uh, self-reliant person, a more uh, calm person. And so for him, it was all about just sort of the self-help dimensions to this, uh, at least that's one experience of one dialogue with a Scientologist. So um, beyond that, I'm not really sure what to say. Well, I, and the little I know about it, and this is from a conversation I, I had with this one person who was starting to get involved in it, and it had to do with um, they were doing uh, they had these things called debits, and you had to get them out of your brain, and they had some techniques that they got involved in to try to clear the brain. And, and so far as she was describing it, it sounded like it had some, you know, there's some truth in that. I mean, you know, about getting at strongholds, waking up to the lies that you've believed and things like that. Um, but you're going to find some truth everywhere, so I wouldn't let that be the, the deal breaker about whether you think it's, it's true or not. I don't think about the mythology of it uh, with, with Dianetics. Oh, and, yeah, the other planets. Oh, yeah, see, I, who knows? Uh, I, I have heard Tom Cruise talk on a video uh, on his, on, he's a, kind of a leader in the whole Scientology movement, and I tell you, it gave me the heebie jeebies. <laughs> he was just going off on this thing, and it was, ew, I don't know. So. <laughs> Lord bless Katie and that family and that mess. That's Tom. All right. Guys, don't forget, we have a limited time, so try to be condensed a little bit. Thank you. Um, Especially when we don't know what we're talking <laughs> about. Yeah, that's <laughs> helpful. Right. Um, could you
could you explain what is the difference between condemnation and conviction? Okay, good. I, 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 would, I would define it like this. Uh, uh, conviction is something that is uh, of, of the Holy Spirit, and it's always about uh, a specific behavior, thought, pattern, whatever. It, it's, it, it's about what you do or what you think or about the way your life is being lived out. There's conviction there, and the Holy Spirit brings that. And the purpose there is to wake you up to turn. The road you're going down is not a healthy road. It's not a godly road. It's not a kingdom road. So the Holy Spirit comes in, convicts, and says, turn around. Condemnation. Uh, is about um, the, it's about you. It's about an an I am thing. Conviction is about I I did or I do sort of a thing. Condemnation I would define as a it's a I am thing, and um, it's where you, it's not just that you do something that is wrong or inappropriate or inconsistent with the kingdom, but you are bad. You are you know vile. You are worthless or whatever. Uh, that's condemnation. And that's what the enemy is, is getting at. Healthy conviction that is, that is genuinely brought about by the Holy Spirit, it actually is, is predicated on the opposite assumption. That is to say this, that the way God operates, when you're a child of God and he wants to bring conviction in your life, he'll, show, he'll convict you about the behavior or the thought or whatever it is that you're doing. But the reason why that is inconsistent is because you are not that way. So you are a righteous child of God, but you're not acting like it. You are... Uh, you have infinite worth, but you're not thinking like it. You know, you, you have a, a extreme significance before God, but your thoughts and your feelings aren't lining up with that. So it brings conviction to show how you, they show the discrepancy between who you are and what you do. Condemnation is about who you are, and it just drives you into the ground, and it's not at all healthy and not of, of God. And I think it's absolutely essential. That, that's what the difference is. Why the difference is important is because I think the enemy uses a what I would call a sin-condemnation cycle to spiral us downward so that uh, it begins by making sin look not that big a deal until you do it, and then the condemnation comes, which causes you to feel worthless, which causes you to be in a much more vulnerable spot next time the temptation comes, and it just can spiral you right right down and away from God. Um, Conviction is going to be when God's trying to interrupt that cycle by not condemning you, but by talking about the the pattern of broken relationship, the sin that God's trying to address to call you back to him. Mm -hmm. I absolutely essential to keep those two things distinct. Good. What do you believe happens immediately after death for believers versus non-believers? Do you believe that there's a place called hell that exists right now where non-believers are being punished and tormented by either God or Satan? Oh, <laughs> take it away, Polly. Well, you know, there's different ways of, of coming at this question, depending kind of on the source you want to use. Um, Christian tradition, um, certainly based on Scripture, uh, has always said that uh, there's, there's two places, ultimately two, two sort of destiny ends for human beings, a place we call heaven, uh, or I would want to say a place that, that God... Uh, heavenizes, uh, the, the actual picture of this in, in uh, the New Testament isn't a place we go to. It's a place that God comes to us. He actually brings a new heaven and a new earth or a renewed earth to us eventually. Um, and of course, another place called hell, the word usually used there, Gehenna, which was the name for the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem's city walls. And so it's a picture of, uh, of sort of a, a scrap heap where that which could have been or could have become human, but didn't, and it sort of left. Um, 
most Christian tradition has said that once someone dies here, they, we don't go to one of those two places instantly, but they're sort of uh, way stations or interim places. Uh, paradise, sometimes uh, the place for those who uh, go to heaven. Uh, Hades, sometimes referred to a place that are sort of prepared, uh, sort of a pre-stage to hell. So there's a lot of different Christian traditions about this. I think it's fascinating when you take into account near-death experiences uh, that uh, people have, empirical sort of experiences of, of death. They come back and have a, a range of reports of what's happened there. Um, but uh, those are some of the things to consider, I guess, in that question. Yeah, this is the, the kind of question where I, it's one of a number of, of issues where uh, once upon a time I had a lot of confidence that I knew what the answer was, uh, and now I don't. Um, and once upon a time, I, I thought it was extremely important, and now I don't. Um, the older I get, the, the less confident I am about other things, but the, the, the fewer the things I think that are really important, and about those I increase in confidence on. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I initially uh, believed in the view that when you die, you automatically go to heaven, or you automatically go to hell, which is what I was taught, what a lot of people are taught. As I began to study the Bible more on my own and kind of learn more about the culture and you know what, what different passages mean, I came to really see, and this is what I think is the, the most important aspect of this question, that the, the hope of the New Testament is not what happens immediately after death. It, it's it's uh, this future, uh, future time uh, where, where everyone's going to be resurrected. Uh, if the Jews had any conception of a disembodied spirit, a spirit apart from a body, it wasn't very clear and it wasn't very important to them. They put all... Their eggs were in the basket of a future thing happening. And um, uh, a great book on that, by the way, is N.T. Wright in his, uh, what's that book called? Uh, Surprised by Hope. Yeah, Surprised by Hope, yeah. Uh, Where he really draws that out, real real importantly. A lot of folks hold that when you die, then you you sort of stop existing until that resurrection. And we know that that that's what uh, a lot of the Jews of the time of of Jesus believed. And I, I I was inclined to that belief for a while. Uh, but now I'm kind of more inclined to think that there's something, some consciousness after death. Um, a few verses seem to suggest that. Not many, but Second uh, uh, Corinthians 5 uh, seems to suggest, suggest that. Uh, Philippians, Philippians 1, where Paul says, I don't know if it's better to be with you or to go to be with the Lord. And so there seems to be something. And then the near-death experiences that Paul and I have uh, done some reading on uh, seem to suggest a consciousness after death. So I'm inclined to believe that there is some kind of consciousness uh, at least for believers after death. Um, but that isn't where I put my hope. Uh, the hope is in this future time when the kingdom's going to come and it's going to be this resurrection and that'll be the judgment, the day of truth, and then we start our eternal uh, relationship uh, in the unbroken, unwavering, perfected kingdom. Which suggests that, because uh, it's interesting, when you see polls on this in American public, um, not many Christians, uh, at least as the polls go, uh, emphasize resurrection. Uh, most Christians have a view that's much more inclined to what Plato believed than what the Bible teaches on this. Uh, a lot of Christians, if you talk to them, they'll, they'll have this picture of sort of a disembodied state of spirit up in a place called heaven that are filled with clouds and little fat babies with harps and wings. And, and none of that is, is biblical. It's much more platonic. Uh, the, the biblical picture is very earthy. It's, it's bodies. It's resurrected bodies. Uh, that are, are redeemed and uh, healed and whole, but it's it's not this ghostly uh, sort of ethereal realm. It's it's a new heavens and new earth or a perfected renewed. version of this. Yeah, a perfected version of this. Can't wait. <laughs> All right. 
<laughs> My grandson just uh, last night, I tweeted this, that he, he comes with me, he pokes my stomach and goes, are you pregnant? <laughs> you serious? <laughs> Is that bad? Uh, I want my new body. Can't wait. You look great, All right. Craig. You look a nice, wonderful. perfected body. ADD we moment. Have, we have a couple questions about salvation. So I'll just read one, but um, this person said, when I was young, I said I would sell my soul to the devil if I could be popular. Can I still be saved, or is my soul already lost? Is there any sin that cannot be redeemed? And we have a couple of people who just said, can Christians lose their salvation? Oh, very good. I'm glad someone asked that. This is a good question, yeah, yeah. because there's, there's a, a, a phrase in the New Testament, um, um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that gets tied off into the phrase, the unforgivable sin. And we've known a couple, you know, people yeah. who, who believe they've like done the sin that, that keeps them out of heaven forever, and that can literally drive someone uh, absolutely really bad places so yeah you... I, I know a lady who um, at one point she was 19 and um, got so enraged towards God he she you know flipped God the bird and uh, swore blank the blank you holy spirit uh, and then immediately like like oh my gosh what have I done and went to her pastor uh, this kind of fundamentalist Baptist pastor and explained what she did until swearing at God Flipping him the finger, and she goes, "Have I sinned against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin?" And he answered, "Yes." Now, as you enter into that, I mean, if you if you believe that you are now going to hell and there's nothing you can do about it, I mean, that is it's a, it's the darkest place imaginable. And she snapped. I mean, she's been in and out of psych wards all of her life, uh, at least in large part because of that. So it's a very important question. And I, I get asked this about once a year. Someone will ask me, in, in all seriousness, have I sinned against the Holy Spirit? Here's the thing, is that uh, the Bible tells us that if we, are, if we confess our sin, he is willing and desiring to forgive us our sin. And that's not ever qualified. Um, and so, you know, that if you can confess your sin, you obviously haven't committed the unforgivable sin. If you can confess it, he can forgive it. He wants to forgive it. Um, so the, the, the sin against the Holy Spirit would have to be a sin that you don't ever want to confess. Um, I always ask people when they ask that question, you know, do you believe Jesus is Lord? And uh, invariably they ask, yeah, they answer yes, because the non-Christians aren't going around being concerned with this. It's the Christians. But I, I show them 1 Corinthians 12, 3, where it says that no one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord um, except by the Holy Spirit. So if, if you believe in this, in fact, the Holy Spirit is the one who's putting on our hearts conviction and drawing us towards God and, and all of that. And so what I tell people is that if you're worried about this, you haven't committed it. Because you wouldn't be worried about it if you had committed it. I think it is a... Re in fact, it's interesting, but, but even Jesus doesn't tell the Pharisees that they have committed it. He warns them about it, but nowhere do you find anyone saying that anyone else had actually done it. That's this hypothetical thing out there. And in the case of Jesus, he's warning the Pharisees because they are so far gone and hardened in their self-righteousness that they can't even distinguish Jesus from the devil. They accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And so that's when Jesus says, I'm going to warn you about something here. Uh, and it's the sin against the Holy Spirit. I think it's when we repeatedly and persistently resist God. The more we do anything, the better we get at it. And, and if, you, if you keep on resisting God, you build up calluses upon calluses upon calluses, and you can get to the point where you're, 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 beyond, you're beyond hope. You, you've gotten to the point where your heart is now so hard that God sees that you cannot change. Um, and at that point, he can just turn you over. Uh, 
But that's, that person wouldn't be worried about it. That person would feel great because now they've got no conviction in their life. This is, I think, the position of the folks in Romans 1, where God gives them over to the reprobate minds. Um, but if you're worried about it, you haven't committed it. It raises another you know, example of the difference between condemnation and conviction. And what greater condemnation than the enemy getting into someone's mind or heart, the yeah. picture of God that would absolutely reject oh. their, their attempts to, to come back to him. Uh, my friend Bob Lee was here tonight, uh, counseled a woman uh, for months on love lines who was just, every time she called in every week, was like, I, I, I did that sin, and I, I'll never be forgiven. And the picture of God, Woodland Hills, we talk about our pictures of God so much because it's that picture in your heart, your mind, your heart, that drives so much of our theology. Yeah. And if your picture doesn't line up with Jesus, it gives the enemy a lot of room then to, uh, to mess with, with your heart and your mind. So if, you're, if your image of God is based on Jesus, then you have to just try to imagine, uh, here is God up in heaven, and uh, you come before him, and uh, he says, I, you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I lost control on that hill when I swore at you, you know, and then uh, we're to believe that God would say, well, no, you, 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 uh, uh, technicality, <laughs> you, you lost it, no, that's not enough, I'm not going to forget that one. Imagine a parent where if, if the kid swore at the parent, then the kid repents and the parent would say, oh, that's unforgivable, absolutely unforgivable. Uh, that doesn't look like Jesus who dies on the cross and prays for the forgiveness of everybody uh, with his last breath. Yeah, your picture of God drives everything. Well, that's when I ask that. There are a lot of really good questions, but we've actually, it's already 610, and so we only have time for one more question, I'm thinking. Well, that's right, we get to 615. Yeah. Wait, uh, I, I, let me say this. We're going to, on the podcast, we're going to include all three services, and we're not going to double up on questions. So I encourage you all to uh, come Monday or Tuesday when they put it up there, you can look through all the other questions uh, that were asked over the weekend because there are, I'm sure, there's some really good ones and you can only get to so many. Yeah, they are. So here's our last one for the evening. As Christians, we believe that sex is something reserved for marriage. How can we convince our youth that this is the right choice when our culture is teaching them the opposite? Mm-hmm. 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 I thought I I'd end that, with an easy question. <laughs> Greg, you're married. <laughs> so am I. Yeah, that was, that, that's exactly what I was thinking. Man, I am right now censoring so much good humor. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? This is the challenge. It's always the challenge uh, to uh, raise up kids in a way that is countercultural. Because uh, you know, we're all social animals, but at that age that you're... The whole process of identity is such that you want to be accepted and to belong and all that kind of stuff. And so my first answer would be you got to create a countercultural community. And that's what we're trying to do in Echo. Uh, kids can't buck the culture alone. It's hard for adults to do it. And adults shouldn't need to do it. We all need community. But with kids, you got to have a, 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 a counterculture where it's understood. You have a new normal. Because the normal out there is that humans are just more sophisticated you know, form of rabbits, <laughs> and <laughs> our sexual ethics can be the same, and it, it really should not be that way. So I, I would say one thing is, is clear biblical teaching, consistent biblical teaching and modeling, but surrounded by com- a community of, of other kids who have also pledged uh, to doing life in a very uh, abnormal way uh, in this culture. To follow Jesus is to be abnormal. Uh, the kingdom normal is in contrast to the uh, normal of the broader culture. I think that's an important part. So a community that's, that's like-minded and that's counter-cultural, expressing the kingdom way. 
of living out our sexuality. I think the other side of this is to actually cast a vision of sexuality that makes sense mm-hmm. uh, as to why the Christian teaching Absolutely. is what it is. And I think my sense is, and I've actually been, been researching this topic for a number of he's years. He's the research hound, I tell you. He's, he's, he's and amazing. what my sense is, is that quite a while ago, as in years, um, most of American cult, Christian culture lost a strong sensibility as to why God would ask uh, human beings to, to maintain sexual expression within a marriage bond. Uh, and all they remember is that he said that. And we can, you know, have some chapters and verses and, yeah, Jesus said to do that. Why? Well, I'm not sure, but he did, and that's important to God, so we better do that. But see, I don't think God just makes up rules just because. God is a a, a loving and logical God. And and if he asks us to do something with our sexuality that seems countercultural, there's probably a pretty good reason. I'll just give a a quick uh, snapshot of what I think that reason is. I think God um, designed and created sexual expression as a feature of a covenant sign for marriage. And once God decided this is the sign of that covenant, and God's God, he can decide whatever he wants with his covenants, all of a sudden that's no longer what it is in the animal world where it's just a biological issue. It is now a covenantal issue. It's something that signs or signifies a ongoing permanent bond between two people. And so when you sign that without the covenant protection around it, uh, consequences happen. And even, you know, secular statistics will tell you some not very good Mm -hmm. consequences. But God told us that a long time ago. The way God designed it was for covenantal bonding, and it really works for that. Outside of that, broken lives, broken hearts, broken families, and a lot of statistics that we could talk about are the evidence of that. What was that one study that you had read that uh, about that uh, serotonin being secreted? Oh, that, yeah, that's a, a lot. Just, just within the last 10 years of uh, brain imaging now, uh, it's been documented that, that sexual expression releases primarily in females oxytocin and in males vasopressin that are powerful bonding agents. And then when you do that outside of a covenantally protected bond of marriage, you're actually bonding and ripping, bonding and ripping. And after a while, the power of those bonds lessens so that when you actually want that to work in a marriage context, particularly for males, they've found, it's actually like a Velcro that sort of wears out over time. And so God designed us. He knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, the way Paul expresses it uh, in First Corinthians is that uh, you know, he says that when we join ourselves with the Lord, we're one spirit with him. And since we're one spirit with the Lord, join with the Lord, how can you, and he's talking to the Corinthians here, uh, join yourselves to prostitutes, become one spirit with prostitutes? These guys were going out, and that was, that was the normal of their culture, and they became Christians and didn't figure out right away that that was wrong. Uh, and so Paul, but Paul, so Paul is saying here that even this most casual of sexual encounters, going and paying for sex is the most casual you can get, even that, in some sense, it, it, it brings together this one flesh reality that God talks about. Uh, and let, let the two become one. And there's a joining of spirits. And then when that gets severed, then there's that ripping that, that Paul just, just mentioned. So God has, I, I, and I, so I think with kids, Paul's absolutely right. We need to be modeling it and communi- having a community around it. But the, the more you can show why God says to do something, the less it comes across as just an arbitrary rule. Like, you know, wear red because I said wear red. You know, it's, it's not arbitrary. There's a, it, it's built into the way that we're wired and the way that it's to function. If you want to a book on this. There's a number out there that are pretty decent, but one uh, recent book is called Hooked. 
um, and it's, I don't even know if the po- folks are Christian, but they're just using this uh, uh, biological evidence of the last 10 years to show why casual sexual activity among teenagers is so devastating, book uh, hooked. Uh, and whenever we, we talk on this topic, I, I always, uh, at the end, want to say, yeah, so there's, there's that warning beforehand, and we need to give it, we need to model it, and all of that. Uh, then there are those for, for whom this is too late. It's like, well, I wish I would have known that 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, you always start with where you're at. And so the word we want to give to those of us in that situation is about the healing power yes. of God Amen. and how God can, can make us new and how God can restore what was broken and so that our marriages don't have to go on faltering because of stuff we've done in the past. The enemy, would, the enemy is the all-time fatalist. You know, the enemy will say, oh, too late, it's done, it's over, you're, you know, you're locked in. That's a lie, 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 lie. It's just a lie. Uh, in Christ, all things are possible, and so uh, there's a healing that is available uh, for us to seek and to get and to restore our lives with. Amen. Well, you guys, th- thanks for being a part of this. I want to encourage you to uh, get the other two uh, uh, messages this weekend as we're going to be taking on other kind of questions. Um, we're looking at, we're trying this here. This is kind of an experiment thing. We're going to be doing this again in a month or so. Uh, just because we really believe that some of the best learning takes place not in a speech, but in, 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 by responding to questions and kind of going off the cuff and things like that. Um, so uh, be tuning in for that next month, but then follow up this week with uh, looking in the other messages. Let me just close with a word of prayer. And as I do, I want to invite the prayer teams to come forward and if you're here tonight and have any need whatsoever uh, that you would like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come up here and re- receive that. It might be about uh, healing from uh, past sexual experiences, but it might be about your finance, financial issues or a health issue or a spiritual issue or anything. Uh, so they're available. I encourage you to not leave here without having had someone pray for you. So Abba Father, we thank you, God, for being a God who has invited us into the fellowship of, the, of, of your triune fellowship and that we are participants of the divine nature. And God, I thank you, God, for an atmosphere where we, where we can ask questions and we don't need to have all the answers and we can disagree on some stuff, but we rally around the, the fundamentals and the foundational stuff. And I pray, God, you keep growing that here and bringing people into this. And now, Lord, as we leave this place, I pray, God, that all who are followers of Jesus would live out the covenant and manifest your love to all people at all times and all situations throughout this week, remaining aware of your presence flowing into them and through them to a hurting world. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out, build the kingdom. Amen.